Well, when you turn on your TV at night and, and the news comes on, in general, do you feel a, a sense of being uplifted and positive? Or uh, rather, do you, as you're watching everything that's going on, do you, do you feel uneasy and a little sick at everything that you see going on in the world today? I mean, outside of a very few brief little uplifting moments where you might see a 30-second blurb of someone doing a good deed towards others, what you really see in the nightly news, it depicts the depravity of man front and center as it unfolds its political scandals, murder, lying, the acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism, violence, sexual debauchery, and on and on it goes. We live in a world that has fallen and it will never get better until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and makes all things right. So I want to ask, when's the last time that you have deeply contemplated the fact that God is sustaining you in your life right now through the power of the Holy Spirit that's you so that you can have complete confidence in Him knowing that he is leading you and guiding you in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. I think far too often as believers, we lose sight of how incredible our God is and how, how we, as his children, are so undeserving of his grace and his mercy and, and his love for us. You know, we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world so that we would be glorious to him. And we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And yet, how often do we actually fix our minds on things above and meditate on the attributes of God? I think we can answer that question with a resounding, not nearly enough. God is our creator and he's given us like I said, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, he's given us physical life, but more importantly, he's given us spiritual life. We have new life in his son, Jesus Christ. We're blessed beyond measure as children of the one true living God. And it's my prayer today that we search scriptures daily and focus and broaden our view on how great our God truly is, how marvelous a majestic Yahweh is in our lives. And our passage this morning, it indeed, it puts God on display so that we can rejoice in the Lord always and praise his holy name. And if you're, you're trying to see, as you're, you're looking at me, you're, you're wondering, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because there's actually something on the screen. Today I'm actually doing a, a PowerPoint. So I have titled today's lesson, the greatness of our God. And our passage is found in 2 Kings chapter 4, and it's the entire chapter. Now, I'm going to do something different. Normally, I would take a, a passage, read some of, the, some of the scripture, and then go over it. I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to read the entire chapter up front. So stay with me. I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to break down this passage say some comments, but I'm not going to reread the passage. So if you have not already done so, please find yourself in 2 Kings chapter 4 and follow along as I read the entire chapter in the infallible, inerrant word of God. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons, and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. 
So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God, passing by us continually. Please, let us make a little walled upper chamber, and let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand, and it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. He said to him, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for the king or to the captain of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Truly she has no son and her husband is old. He said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, At this season next year you will embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. The woman conceived and bore a son at the season the next year, as Elisha had said to her. When the child was grown, the day came, and he went out to his father to the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat her on his lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, Why will you go out to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It will be well. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God, to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came near to push her away, but the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself lives, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the, the staff on the lad's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the, la on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. He called, he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she came in to him, he said, take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. 
Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the, man, the men to eat. And as they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. But he said, Now bring meal. He threw it in the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. Now a man came from Baal Shalashah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, What will I set? What, will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. So in this chapter, what we're going to see is five truths about Yahweh that should cause us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And for learning purposes, I, I've encapsulated these truths into five separate three-word phases. So the first phase, uh, phrase is found in verses 1 through 7, and it's God's merciful provision. So as we saw that, this is a section where we see a widow of one of the sons of the prophets. And, and in my study Bible, it, it actually says concerning the sons of the prophets, who they were, it actually refers me back to 1 Kings 20.35, where the footnote states, an association of prophets that met and possibly lived together for study, encouragement, and service. So we, we learn here that this woman's husband was a part of this group of prophets and he was a righteous man who feared the Lord and he died. But we don't know the specifics of why this man actually didn't leave any monetary means to support his family when he was gone. All we know is that when he died, there was a large debt. Rather, as a matter of fact, the debt was so large that the creditors were going to come and take this woman's two sons and make them slaves. And according to the Mosaic law, he had every right to be able to do that. Because when you owed something there and you couldn't pay it back, you can bring them into a, a creditor's debt, make them slaves to pay off the debt before they let them go. And because this woman was married to a prophet of Yahweh, we can deduce from the text that, that she herself was also a righteous woman that feared the Lord. So she makes this plea, this request uh, to Elisha about her, her dire, dire need and what's taking place in her life. And so Elisha, immediately, he, he asked the woman, well, what can I do for you? What do you actually have in your house that may be able to get you out of this situation that you're in? The woman's reply, she just says, I only have a jar of oil. I think about that. Can you hear that in her voice? There's just the utter desperation. I only have this jar of oil. I mean, really, in all of my house, I have nothing of value whatsoever but this oil. Really, what good is that going to do? Me, what good is that going to do for my sons? But without hesitation, Elisha tells the woman to go and collect a bunch of vessels from her neighbors. And she uses the phrase, do not get a few. And you know, I was kind of laughing as I thought about that when I was doing that. I thought, well, when I'm sitting on the couch and Marcella says, hey, I'm going to the kitchen to get some cookies, that's the same phrase I use. Yes, don't get a few. Bring me back a bunch. But anyway, so uh, this woman, what does she do? She, she immediately, she, she obeys the command. She goes out to all her neighbors and she borrows a vast amount of these vessels. 
And she goes into her room and she closes the door behind her. She's in the room by herself, just as Elisha told her to do. And she begins, one by one, to fill up these vessels with the oil that was in her jar. The only thing that she had in her house. As one vessel is filled with oil, she gets, goes out to her son, gets another. She keeps doing that over and over and over again until finally she comes out and says, I need another vessel. So there's no more. Immediately, the oil stops. And you know, there's some commentators that say, well, she just didn't have enough faith. I mean, if, if she would have got out and got more vessels, she would have had more oil. That's not the point of the story here. The point is how great God is in his merciful provision to this woman. I mean, she did exactly what she was told to do. Go out, get the vessels, come back, fill them up. So she does that, and, and she turns, and she goes to Elisha and, and recounts what took place with the oil, and he tells her, here's what you're going to do. You're going to sell the oil. You're going to pay off all your debt. And, and here's a bonus. Not only is your debt going to be wiped out, but now you're going to have enough left over to take care of your needs and your kids' needs. That is amazing. I mean, what an awesome God we serve. Yahweh had compassion on this righteous widow and on her sons by providing their needs right in the middle of their tumultuous season of their lives. This woman's sons were about to be taken away from him. I mean, mothers here, can you imagine that? That you owed a debt and they were coming and they were going to take your kids from you? That must have broken her heart. But by God's grace, he provided for their needs in a marvelous way. And then you have to ask yourself today, how many times in your life has God provided you, provided for you in an amazing way? I mean, when your back was up against the wall and you had no idea how your need was going to be met, God showed up. I bet all of us here, all of us here, can have some wonderful stories to, to tell of how God in a situation that you knew, I can't pay this. I don't know how uh, the next meal is going to come. I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill. Something that seems so insurmountable to you in a financial way. And, and yet, God, he strengthened you. You go to him. You trust in him. He strengthened your faith by the provision that he gave to you. And his provision caused us and caused you to, to worship Yahweh and thank him for his merciful provision. And this takes us to our second truth, which is God's majestic providence. It's found in verses 8 through 17. See, in these verses, we learn about a trip that Elisha takes to Shuman, and which, which is a town that's in the territory of Issachar. And on this trip, he meets a prominent woman of that town, which means that she was quite wealthy, and probably she had great social status in Shunem. She persuades Elisha to stop in her home with her husband to share a meal, and he does so. In our text, it lets us know that, that Elisha would frequently travel through Shunem to other areas for ministry, and he would stop at this woman's home and have a meal with her and her husband. And so we see that, uh, that over time, this woman, she realized that, hey, Elisha, he's traveling quite a bit, all on a regular basis. Let's do this. So she asked her husband, hey, this man of God is coming through town. Let's build an upper enclosed dwelling place for him and give him all the necessities he needs. Let's give him a table, a chair, a lamp, and, and let's also give him a bed so that when he comes, he can actually stay with us. And if you remember two weeks ago, when Terry talked about biblical hospitality in his lesson, I mean, come on, I mean, this is taking it to the next level. She sees this need and she builds an upper room for this man of God to stay with him. And he does. 
And so this room was built and Elisha came and on occasion he rested here in this room. And Elisha, he, he has a servant named Gehazi. And, and he really wanted to show this Shunammite woman his gratitude for always showing him hospitalities. He's coming in and out of town. So he, he really wants to know, is there anything that we can do? Uh, what can we do for this woman? So through his servant Gehazi, Elijah asks the woman, what would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? You might say, well, what does that mean? Well, what it, what it, that statement, it's suggesting that Elijah knew uh, some powerful people in the land and, and he had some influence with these individuals where he could request something on behalf of this woman. But yet, rather than making a request to him, she doesn't do that. She doesn't say, oh, I would love for you to go and do this, you know, X, Y, Z. Instead, she replies with, I live among my own people. What does that mean? In essence, what she's saying is, thank you for asking, but I am content with what I have. I don't need anything. Well, Elisha, he, he doesn't want to hear that. He's like, well, there's got to be something. There has to be something that I can actually do. So he knew that when he sent Gehazi to ask her this question, he, he knew that there was some interaction between the two. So he asked Gehazi, what's going on? There's got to be something that we can do for this woman. And Gehazi, he, he informs Elisha that the Shunammite does not have a son and that her husband is old. You know, in the ancient world, it was looked down upon if you were barren. Uh, you were looked at as unfavored by God. So she is barren, and she did not have a son to bring forth the name of her family to the next generation. And upon hearing this information, Elisha has Gehazi call the Shunammite woman to himself, and, and he tells her, hey, at this season next year, you are going to conceive. You're going to have a son. And you would expect that this woman would be overjoyed to hear that. She's been barren her whole, whole life, and now she gets news she's going to be pregnant and give forth a, a son. But she doesn't say that. What does she actually say? She says, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. So was she actually saying, you're lying to me? No. It, it was her way of saying, oh, I've been barren all my life. Please, don't say something and get my hopes up. I want a baby, but, but come on, don't get my hopes up, Elisha. So that's the intent there. She's not actually calling him a liar. So uh, she was barren, and she probably felt as though it was impossible absolutely impossible for her to conceive and give birth to a child. But what happens? <laughs> we look in the text, nevertheless, she indeed did conceive and give birth to a son at that season, following, in that season the following year, exactly as prophet Elijah told her. I mean, again, what a wonderful, wonderful display of God's great mercy and his, his greatness. I mean, in his, think about it, in his majestic providence, he allowed Elijah to cross paths with the Shunammite woman and her husband and to be regular guests in their home. He didn't know. Elijah, we don't see anywhere in here that he knew that she was barren and that God was sending him there for this purpose. And you know what? You know. You know there must have been countless nights that this woman she probably call, called out to God, please give me a child, and, and yet she was barren. And I'm sure she had no idea that the hospitality she and her husband extended to Elijah would actually result in the fact that God opened up her womb and she was able to conceive and give birth to a son. We can worship Yahweh today for his providential care in our lives 
I mean, how many times have, have you reflected on, on certain situations in your life that you know took place in, in your life that, that only God could have orchestrated the minute, intricate details to cause a certain specific event to take place in your life that was for your good and for his glory? It happens all the time. I mean, we can worship Yahweh for his merciful provision and for his majestic providence. And this brings us to our third truth phase. It's God's miraculous power. And it's found in verses 18 through 37. So as this story unfolds, we see that this, this boy, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's a lad, so he's, he's old enough to walk and to go out into the field by himself to go see his father. So he does that. Uh, she, she's given birth. He's old enough. He goes out to his father in the field. And our text, as you're reading it, it implies that this took place during the harvest. And we know that because we hear, hear it says there were reapers. And so in this time of year, it was very hot in this season. So, so when the lad cries out, my head, my head, he probably was affected by sunstroke. And his father tells him, hey, you know what? Here's my servant, calls him, go take him to his mother. Good advice. I mean, when you think about it, moms are the best. Moms are the best. I mean, when you, when you get hurt, moms, that's who you want. They nurture a child so well. I mean, think about it. For the most part, when you were a kid, when you got hurt, did you run to your mom or did you run to your dad? Chances are most of us ran to our mom because we knew that when we got hurt that they would kiss our owies and make it all better, whereas our dad would just say, ah, slap on a band-aid and get back out there. What are you, griping? What are you, what are you griping about? So moms are awesome. So this boy, he's brought to his mother, and he's put on her, her lap until noon, and then he dies. I mean, this woman, she was barren for years. God had miraculously opened up her womb, and here this little boy is in her lap, and he dies right in front of her. And you know, it doesn't say immediately in the text that she mourned it. It says that she immediately, she takes her son, goes up to the upper chamber, to the, to the man of God's room, lays this boy on the bed, closes the door behind her, and then she goes out and she sees her husband. And she wants to find out, she wants to get to the man of God very quickly. So she sends word to her husband that she needs a donkey and that she needs a servant and a donkey because she's going to run to the man of God, and after she gets there, she'll, she'll come back. And you know, her husband uh, was wondering why she wants to go and see Elisha. It's not a new moon, and it's not a Sabbath. In the footnote in my Bible, it states that the first day of the month and the seventh day of the week were both marked with special religious observances and rest from work. The husband implied that only on such dates would a person visit a prophet. So she makes that request. This is what he says. And then apparently, because we don't see it in the text, she doesn't want to bother her husband. She doesn't want to, to worry him at this moment. She doesn't tell him that their son has died. All she says is, it will be well. You know, she believed that Elijah was a man of God. And she saw how his claim that she would give birth to a son, that it came to pass. So here she's exercising faith. She probably thought of or at least hoped that Elijah could indeed perform a miracle and bring her son back to life. And her request was granted. And she saddled a donkey and she told her servant to, to go at a pace, Go at a real fast pace. Don't wait for me unless I stop you. Get going. We got to get here fast. She didn't want to waste any time. Her son is lying upstairs dead on the prophet's bed, and she knew she had to get to him to make this request to Elisha. So she goes at this very fast pace, about 15 to 25 miles away from Shunem, and they arrive at Mount 
Carmel where Elisha was located. But Elijah sees her in the distance. He sees her coming, and, and he says to his servant Gehazi, go quick, run to her, and ask her, is her family okay? Is she okay? How's the child? So Gehazi does that, gets there, and, and not wanting to waste any time. This woman's on a mission. She's like, i got to get to the prophet. So instead of going through everything that's going on and tells Gehazi, she just says, it is well. So they get to this mountain. And, oh, she, she just falls at his feet. She laments. She actually grasps his feet, which is a sign of humility and reverence. And Gehazi, he didn't like that. He sees this woman fall at, at his master's feet and grab it, and he's trying to push her away. He says, hey, hey, stop. Don't do that. What does Elisha say? He says, no, 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 no. Leave her be. This woman is in grief. She's in pain, and, and for some reason, Yahweh has hidden the reason why she is in grief. I don't know what's going on. Leave her be. And then the woman proclaims, Did I ask for a son from you, my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Boom. Immediately, Elisha knew what was going on. Because earlier, she was referring to when Elisha asked her, what can I do for you? What do you want from me? She said, I'm content. I don't need anything. But Elisha pushes the, the issue and, and he says, no, no, no. You will conceive and give birth to a son. She told him, don't get my hopes up. Don't tell me something that may not happen. And by the act of her grasping his feet and proclaiming what she said, Elijah realized that the boy had died and he immediately takes action. He instructs Gehazi to take his staff, meaning Elijah's staff, and, and make haste in getting to the Shunammite woman's house. See, Elisha made it very clear to Gehazi, get there right away. Don't stop. Don't dilly-dally. If someone's greeting you on the way, don't stop and have a meal with them. Your task is to run ahead, get to that house as soon as possible. And then Elisha sent Gehazi ahead of him because he was younger. He was faster. He knew that this young man could get to that house way sooner than he and the Shunammite woman could. And Elisha, he, he instructed Gehazi that upon his arrival, use my staff. Lay it on the lad's face. You might be going, well, well why, would he, why would he do that? Well, if you remember in Eric's message last week, Elijah, with his own cloak, he rolled it up, and when he was standing with he and Elisha in front of the Jordan River, he strikes the Jordan River and it parts, and he walks across both of them walk across on dry land. So perhaps now, Elisha was expecting his own staff to, to act as a divine uh, instrument from which Yahweh would bring this boy back to life. And the woman, she tells Elisha, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Those kind of sound like familiar words. Ah, they do because those were the exact same words that Elisha said to Elijah on three different occasions on the last day of Elijah's life here on earth before God took him up to heaven. Elisha told him, I will not leave your side. And this woman is saying the same thing. No, no, no. We're going back to my home, but I am not leaving your side. So they begin their journey to the woman's home and and Gehazi, he runs ahead of them, and, and he goes to the upper room, and just like he was told, there is this lad on the bed, lifeless. So he takes the staff of Elisha, puts it on his boy's face. Nothing happens. He's still dead. So Gehazi goes back, because again, since, since it took them a while to go 15 to 25 miles, Gehazi has to go back now and meet Elisha and the Shunammite woman along the way, and, and he relays to Elisha that the lad has not awakened. So when Elisha, when he arrives at the house, he, he doesn't let anybody else go into the room. 
He goes upstairs into his room and, and he finds this boy on the bed, dead. And he closes the door behind him. So it's just he and this lad. And inside the room, Elijah prayed to Yahweh. Don't miss that. That is a very key thing right here and a very real lesson that we can learn from Elijah's actions that took place in that room. You see, in an unbelievable situation that Elijah was facing, Elisha was facing right there, beyond anything that he can do in his own strength, he went to Yahweh in prayer. I'm sure that there have been situations in your life that seemed overwhelmingly impossible to overcome. And don't, hear, don't get me wrong, I am not talking about the fact that, that you were trying to raise someone from the dead or that you were trying to heal someone uh, physically. I'm not talking about that. But there have been times in your life when, when you knew there was absolutely nothing that you could do in your human power to change the situation in your life. And you fell on your knees and you cried out to Yahweh for instruction, for discernment, for guidance, for his provision with a humble heart of surrender to his will. And God Almighty proved himself to be faithful. So many times we see that. So in our text, that's exactly what Elijah does. He sees this dire situation. There's nothing he can do about it. He goes to Yahweh in prayer. And our text, it, it doesn't explicitly state this, but we can gather by what happens because of the actions that Elisha takes right after this, that Yahweh instructed Elijah what needed to be done in order for life to return to this lad's body. So what does he do? He lays upon the child, and, and we don't really know why he does all this, but, but he puts his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes upon his eyes, his hands upon his hands, and he stretched himself upon this boy, and the flesh becomes warm. So it's warm, but he doesn't get up. He's not quite alive. It's, it's, uh, he's just waiting for it. So Elijah, he leaves the room, goes into the house, and he walks once back and forth, goes up to the room again and he stretched himself out upon the boy and the boy sneezed seven times and the boy opened his eyes. Eliza then, he, he, he called for Gehazi to go tell the Shunammite woman, come here, your son is alive. Take your son. I mean, can you imagine the joy of this mom? Here it is, Several years prior to that, when she was barren, and Elijah says, you're going to have a son. She goes, don't, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that unless it's going to happen. It happens, and now shortly after that, he dies. It's like, oh, she runs to the man of God. Now, in God's mighty power, brings this child back to life. And here he is. Here's your son. I can only imagine that feeling that must have been going through her. She fell at Elijah's feet and, and most assuredly she called out and thanked him for going to Yahweh on her behalf to bring her son back to life. She takes the son and she leaves. I mean, what a display of God's miraculous power. So we, we forward to, the, to today and we ask ourselves the question, does God still heal people today? And the resounding answer is yes, he does. But he does not use individuals as miracle that have the, the gift of healing. Yes, he'll use people through medicine and through, through surgeries, but actually people that are blind or are deaf or can't walk, can God raise them up and heal them today? Absolutely. He just doesn't do it through a human instrument. Those sign gifts ceased at the close of Scripture. Nobody has the gift of healing today. But our God is all-powerful, and this should just be another reason that would cause us to worship him wholeheartedly. This brings us to our fourth truth phase, which is found in verses 38 through 41. God's manifold protection. 
So we, we are no longer in Shunem with this woman, but uh, he, he's now, Elisha's returned to Gilgal, and there's a famine in the land. And Gilgal is where Elijah and Elisha started on their journey toward Jericho on the last day of Elijah's life here on earth before he was taken to heaven alive and this city, it was located in the hill country of Ephraim, about seven miles north of Bethel. And now, a- as a side note, it was kind of cool. As I was studying for this, I-, I found myself in Joshua in my daily Bible study. And there is another city named Gilgal located on the west side of the Jordan River. So if you actually study Joshua chapter 3 and 4, you're going to see that, that right on the verge of the nation of Israel preparing to go into the promised land, to conquer it, to live there and take the land, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River. And Yahweh caused the waters to split apart so that all of Israel can go across into the land so that they can conquer it. And then what happens is, as the priests are still in the middle of the land, Joshua tells, he gets 12 sons of the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, go out, get a stone from the middle, bring it back, set it up on this side in Gilgal so that it's a memorial that when your sons look back, what are these stones? They can look up and say, Yahweh opened up the Jordan for us to cross on dry land so that we could conquer this land. That was just a freebie for y'all that are, have Bible trivia knowledge and uh, when you come across the name Gilgal in the Old Testament. So Elisha, he's in Gilgal and there, there's a famine in the land. And we once again see the sons of the prophets, they're, they're at his feet, at Elisha's feet, which means that they realize the fact that, that Elisha is the head prophet of Yahweh in the land of Israel. So Elisha turns to his servant and he tells him, hey, put on a large pot and boil some stew so that we can feed the sons of the prophets. Well, he does. Uh, we, we don't know exactly if it was, was Gehazi, if it was his servant or a different person or actually one of the sons of the prophets, but someone goes out into the field and starts gathering herbs for the stew and and we see that he finds this wild vine with wild gourds on it. And, and my study Bible in the footnote, it states that these gourds probably were a kind of wild cucumber that can be fatally poisonous if eaten in large quantities. So he doesn't know what it is, but he brings it back, gets it with herbs. He gets these gourds and he cuts them in half, puts them in the stew. And when the stew is ready, Oh, here we go. Not knowing that these gourds were uh, poisonous, he puts it in front of these men, and they start eating it, and they cry out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. Men, listen to me very carefully. I don't care if there's a meal that your wife puts in front of you and you don't like it. Never, ever say that, because that may be the last meal she ever cooks for you. I'm just saying. But anyway, something is very terribly wrong in this stew. They take a bite, and and I'm sure that their stomachs were feeling very agitated right away, and they're they're saying, man, there's something wrong with this. We can't eat this stew. There's no way. But Elijah tells someone to bring him meal, which is flour. And he puts it into the, the stew, and he instructs someone to put it back in front of the sons of the prophets for them to eat. And the stew was now edible. So what we must comprehend is the fact that that here, the the power was not in the meal slash flour itself to cure this poisonous stew. That wasn't the point. The point is that this was a miraculous divine intervention by Yahweh himself, curing this inevitable stew and allowing the people to not be sick. Isn't it wonderful to to think and comprehend that Yahweh cares for his people? He's so compassionate and loving towards them, and he protects them in miraculous ways. 
You know, there, there are two very distinct times in my life that without the hand of God in my life, I know I should be dead. No question. No question at all. But his marvelous hand of protection resided over me and he allowed me to live. And I'm sure that there are countless times in our lives that take place every single day of our lives that we don't even know that God is intervening on our behalf, keeping us away from grave danger. And we don't even know about it. So when is the last time that you have thanked your heavenly Father for his marvelous, manifold protection in your life? We all should be worshiping Yahweh for his merciful provision, his majestic providence, his miraculous power, and his manifold protection. This brings us to our fifth and final truth phase. It's found in verses 42 and 44, through 44, and it's God's marvelous production. So a, a man, he, he came from Baal-Shalashah, and the exact location of that city, it, it's not known to us, but this man, he, he brings Elijah bread from the first fruits, which we see in verse 42, it states that it was 20 loaves and a fresh uh, ears of grain. A and you might kind of ponder right there and say, whoa, 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 whoa. First fruits. Why is this man bringing first fruits to Elijah? Because the first fruits of your crop and of everything is supposed to be given to God and to the, to the Levitical priests. We all know, as we've been studying in Kings, that, that, that Israel was apostate that none of the priests in Israel actually were qualified to be priests and they served false gods. So this man, he brings his first fruits to Elijah knowing that Elijah was indeed a true prophet of Yahweh. So even though Israel was apostate, there still was a remnant that served Yahweh and this man apparently was one of the remnant. So he brings this food and gives it to Elisha. And Elisha says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Let's give this food to the people for them to eat. And you would think, yeah, this is great. Let's see what happens. How is God going to provide? No, the response is Elisha's servant, he's skeptical. He's like, oh man, how is this relatively small amount of food going to feed this fairly large crowd of people. So his attendant, he says, what? Will I set this before a hundred men? Now, we don't know exactly, was there really just a hundred people? Or, or is this something that, I mean, it very well could be. Or was it talking about a very large crowd? doesn't really matter. The fact was there wasn't enough food to feed however many people were in the crowd. But Elisha proclaims, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Seeing that Elijah was a prophet of God, we, we gather that Yahweh gave Elisha direct revelation that that amount of food indeed would feed the people that were in front of Elisha. So the food was given to them, and guess what? Just like Yahweh said, it fed everybody in the crowd, and there was food left over. Yahweh marvelously produced food that was given to Elisha from the man who came from Baal-Shalashah. Where else in Scripture have we seen that uh, there's a little bit of food and it goes and it feeds a great multitude of people? You know, that, that happened on two separate recorded events in the life of Jesus where his disciples were very skeptical. Man, this is just a little bit of food, Jesus. How is that going to feed everyone here? And on both occasions, there was plenty for the crowd and then some. I mean, how many times in our lives have we seen how we've experienced our great God has, has taken what we've had and seemingly increased what we have to meet our needs? 
I'm not talking about we've got one loaf and boom, all of a sudden we've got two. I'm not talking about that, but rather God provided for our needs in ways that were so far beyond what we could, could expect. And guess what? It wasn't late. It was right on time to meet the need that we had. You know, when we look at this passage, we, we look up. We should be looking up to our great God. I mean, there's five reasons that we should be worshiping our great God and give him the praise and worship that he and he alone deserves because his merciful provision and for his majestic providence, his miraculous power, his manifold protection, and his marvelous production. You see, as Christians, we need to look at our lives and, and contemplate all the magnificent things, all these blessings that God has bestowed upon us. And then we are to give him worship that is due him and him alone. Do we do that on a regular basis? Do we fall on our knees and just count our blessings and say, thank you, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. We were created to worship our great God. So let's be faithful to, our, to the Lord in our fear and reverence of him and worship him in spirit and truth. Father, we come before you today and we are so grateful for what you've done for us. You take care of every single one of our needs. Most importantly, you took care of us at the cross with salvation. You've given us new life in your son and we thank you for that, that we can live lives of joy here and now and knowing, looking forward to the kingdom that you have for us in the millennial and then the eternal state that we've been listening to Pastor Tom and main service. Father, we long for that day to be with you. But until then, may we be mindful of your greatness in our lives and, and your attributes that we can worship you daily, Lord, because we can get so bogged down by this sin-cursed world that we neglect to give praise and honor to you. So, Lord, I pray, uh, including myself, everyone here today, that every single day will just call upon your name, loving you, honoring you, worshiping you through the reading of Scripture, through praying to you, through Christian fellowship, that you may be glorified in this world and through our lives, that others that come in contact with us that aren't saved can be saved because they see our testimony, they hear the gospel coming from our mouth, and you miraculously save them for your glory. We pray all of this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.